New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Nature is an assemblage of entanglement of which we are messily embedded. We are multi-species beings consisting of trillions of bacteria, viruses, and fungi that coordinate the task of living. Science has divided life into three kingdoms, plant, animal, and fungi. Fungi eat rock, make soil, digest pollutants, both nourish plants and cause plants to decompose. They can survive in space, induce visions, produce food, make medicine, manipulate animal behavior, and influence the composition of Earth's atmosphere, to list just a few of their activities. They live their lives largely hidden from view, and over 90% of their species remain undocumented. Today, we'll be exploring the kingdom of fungi and its importance to all life on the planet with our guest, Dr. Merlin Sheldrake. Merlin Sheldrake is a biologist and writer with a background in plant sciences, microbiology, ecology, and the history of philosophy of science. He received his PhD in tropical ecology from Cambridge University for his work on underground fungal networks in tropical forests in Panama, where he was a pre-doctoral research fellow at the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute. He's also a musician and a keen fermenter. He's the author of Entangled Life, How Fungi Make Our Worlds, Change Our Minds, and Shape Our Futures. Join us for the next hour as we delve deep into the roots of nature and discover our co-evolution with fungi with our guest, Dr. Merlin Sheldrake. I'm speaking with Dr. Sheldrake at his home by remote connection. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Merlin, welcome. Thanks for having me, Justine. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. I would love to go back to your childhood because there's a story you tell about how much you love to just jump into uh, autumn leaves, into these piles of leaves, and you notice at some point how the the piles would start to shrink through time, through the weeks. And um, that led you 
your father, uh, Rupert Sheldrake, to to help you out to understand what was going on. He developed an experiment for you. I'd love for you to tell us about that experiment in your early childhood. Of course, yes. Well, I think it's quite a classic experiment to to show how um, how things mix and meld and transform. And so we got we got a plastic bottle and we cut the lid at the top of the plastic bottle and we filled it with layers of soil and sand and leaves and soil and sand and leaves. And then we added some earthworms and the worms over time because you can see these these hard edges of the layers from the, to the side of the bottle and over time these hard edges started to dissolve and blur into each other as the earthworms carried sand into the soil, soil into the sand, leaves into the soil and sand. And it was a very vivid way to see how, how the soil is both alive, but also as a way of uh, modeling the way that things change and the way that things decompose, because you could see uh, how quickly this happened. And you could see these hard edges and these hard boundaries dissolving. So, it was a very memorable experience for me. And that's kind of an origin story for you that that even this book in Entangled Life, I mean, is coming out of that childhood experience of um, you're really seeing something right in front of you decompose and how it all worked. Is that right? Is that absolutely yes? So I mean, that was a one of the. Um, foundation experiences for me. There were quite a few because the fungal lives are so unavoidable that it's hard to have lots of different routes into a fungal interest. Um, but that was certainly one. So you say we're surrounded by fungi, but we're, we don't notice it. What is the ecological significance of fungi and, and what are their superpowers, let's say? There are so many. Um, I think of them as metabolic wizards. You know, they have these amazing powers of uh, transformation and, and, and chemical abilities. So, for example, um, minerals from rock moves its way into the metabolic cycles of the living through fungal activity, who can use high pressure and acids to digest it. Um, there are fungi that live in plant roots, without which plants would never have evolved. And these fungi supply plants with nutrients and water and underpin the uh, food chains that sustain almost all life on land. Uh, there's decomposition, which is a huge thing. Now, if, if fungi didn't decompose, we'd be buried kilometers deep in bodies. And so we live in the space that decomposition leaves behind. And this is a major one. Fungal activity returns huge amounts of carbon to the atmosphere. You can think of them as turning the carbon cycle in some ways. So they they actually don't do photosynthesis themselves. They don't take energy directly from the sun. How do they get their energy? So they're more like us in the sense that they have to eat living organic material or dead organic material, but material that was once living. Um, so plants make their own food. They make their own energy-containing carbon compounds from the sun, from photosynthesis. Um, we have to eat plants or eat animals that have eaten plants and fungi are similar. So fungi is more like like mammals, like humans, than than plants in some ways. Is that is that fair to say? 
Yes, and we're more closely related to the, the animal world. The animal kingdom is more closely related to the fungal kingdom than the fungal kingdom is to the plant kingdom. So uh, we do share this basic nutritional logic with fungi. It's kind of hard for us to understand that because they don't have a brain, they don't have a central nervous system, and they don't look like us. Um, they're quite alien. Help us to understand this this life that is we're just that is embracing us, and we don't even know it. But what what is this network? Yes, so most fungi live most of their lives not as mushrooms. Mushrooms are the fruiting bodies of fungi, akin to apples on a tree or grapes on a vine. Most fungi live most of their lives as branching, fusing networks of tubular cells, known as mycelium. And this is how they feed. They, they put their bodies in their food, unlike us. We, we put food in our bodies. They do it the other way around. And um, so if you're trying to put your body in your food, you have to have a, a shape-shifting body. You can't have a body plan because your food is of different, you know, a lump of decaying wood is going to be a different shape and size wherever you encounter it. So you have to be flexible to meet the flexibility of the environment. And for that reason, it would make no sense for a fungus to have a brain because just like plants, you know, they, they, if you stay in one spot, you're vulnerable to being eaten or, or preyed on. And if you had a brain, you'd just be one move and you'd kill the plant. You know, one move and you'd kill us. And so we're very vulnerable like that. The brain is useful for us because we have it neatly packed up in a kind of suitcase of our skull, uh, which is good because we, we roam amount, around, we locomote. But fungi and plants, it would make no sense to have a center of control like that. Um, so they don't. And so they, their control is distributed you know they regulate their behavior both everywhere at once and nowhere in particular so i can i get it that it's kind of shape-shifting it's sort of like a i think of it sort of like a star trek thing of this alien that can shift its shape and move around and and be a whole network there what is the largest living organism i think that has been discovered in uh, oregon is that right yeah, it's a fungus, an armillaria fungus, which stretches over 10 square kilometers and you know, is thousands of years old and weighing hundreds of tons. And there are probably many other larger ones. You know, we, we know that that's there because people went in and did intensive sampling uh, because they expected to find a big fungus. But um, you don't just spot these things, and you have to you have to go in and test and do these genetic tests. So, I'm sure there are many larger ones that remain undiscovered. Well, Merlin, when um, you research this, it's really hard, from what I understand from your book, because you can't directly see the work that the mycelium is is doing. That's part of this whole network. So. How do you know what's going on? It's a good question, and it's something that fungal biologists wrestle with. And it's due to advances in these techniques that we know more and more about fungi now. It's a great subject of inquiry. So there are lots of ways. Um, you can look under the microscope. You know, If you want to see the fungi living in plant roots, you can look under the microscope. But, but that's limited because it involves killing the roots. And so you have to kill them, prepare them, stain them. You know, and what you're looking at is this these embalmed bodies you know, rendered in false colors, and it's hard to get a sense of their 
natural behavior. So then you can grow them in in dishes in the lab, you know, and that's a way that people often um, study fungi is in these carefully controlled microcosms. And then you can see them grow and study their branching behavior, their fusing behavior. You can do these fine scale studies. But the problem with those situations is that these environments are very artificial and and because they shapeshift and they change their behavior so readily, when you have them in a in a um, an obstacle free lab environment, you know, you're seeing them in an obstacle free lab environment, not in the wild, in the cluttered obstacle course of the soil. You know, so it's hard then to get a sense of what they're doing out there. So there are other ways to study that, and so you can label fungi with radioactive chemicals and then follow those traces through their networks and that's a very effective way to study them and people have been using that but that has limitations too and um, now what's really fun now is that people are working out how to how to stain fungi and look at their traffic passing through their networks in real time and this is a very exciting area of fungal research because you can actually see the movement through their networks and get a sense of of how they do it. And um, I always find this very thrilling to watch these videos. I'm wondering, in the midst of all of this, what the benefit of all this research is doing, and we'll talk about that in just one moment. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Dr. Merlin Sheldrake, and he's the author of Entangled Life, How Fungi make our worlds, change our minds, and shape our future. And if you want to know more about uh, the work of Dr. Sheldrake, you can go to his website, merlinsheldrake.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. with Dr. Merlin Sheldrake, and he's the author of Entangled Life, How Fungi Make Our Worlds, Change Our Minds, and Shape Our Futures. Merlin, I'd love for you to say something about what are the expectations of the research that you're doing? Why are you doing it, and what what benefit is it to to human life to know more about uh, fungi? So the the type of fungus that I've been studying are these so-called mycorrhizal fungi. Myco meaning fungus and rhiza meaning root. So these are the fungi that live symbiotically, cooperatively within plant roots 
and range out, lacing out into the soil in a, in a fine mycelial network, where they scavenge for nutrients and water and return these to the plant and trade with the plant. And the plant, in return, supplies them with energy-containing carbon compounds. And this is a very ancient relationship. It is as old as plants' life on land, you know, 500 million years ago or so, more or less. Uh, the earliest ancestors of plants, the algal ancestors of plants, started to make their way out of fresh water and onto the land. But these were puddles of photosynthetic tissue. They didn't have defined forms, certainly no roots. And they would not have been able to scavenge in the solid medium of the soil. And so fungi, at that point, we're pretty sure, struck up a relationship with these algae and behaved as their root systems for the first 50 million years or so of their life on land. So this relationship is older than roots, it's older than leaves, it's older than wood, it's older than flowers, older than fruit. It's a more fundamental part of planthood than any of these characteristics that we think of when we think of the word plant. So this relationship is really fundamental to what we call life on land. And, and because our lives and the lives of all the animals that sustain us also depend on plants, uh, this relationship is um, really a pivotal one for us. So understanding more about how this works, um, how we can work with this relationship, how we can understand more about the ways that these relationships form or break down, this is all very important. Can plants live without fungi? Some plants don't form strict mycorrhizal relationships, but about 90% of plants do. The ones that don't form those relationships form more casual relationships a lot of the time um, with fungi in their roots. And, and all plants, so far as we know, form relationships with fungi in their leaves and in their shoots, these so-called endophytes. And so plants are really part fungus. You know, their, their microbiome is a fungal one, and, and these relationships go back a very long way. Um, so it's a, I, I think of plants as algae that have evolved to farm fungi and fungi that have evolved to farm algae. Oh, it's very, very complex. I'm, I'm thinking of going back to the scientific method or maybe the classical one where, where science researchers often go about to um, break down complex systems into component parts. They separate, just sort of sort out things and, and pull them out of their context and look at things like that. And you're doing a different thing. You're 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 approaching it in a dif different way, I believe. Well, I wouldn't say that it's that different. It's I mean, it's a scale question, right? So, if you're studying anything scientifically, you have to limit your um, the theatre of your study. You know, you have to have a spotlight, a focus on something, because when you're designing studies, you you have to. Um, it's like a, a net. You know, you let some things pass and you try to catch certain phenomena, certain behaviors. So you have to define these, these limits and these edges. But one thing is interesting about studying fungi is because they're such fundamentally connected organisms, because they live their lives entangled with other organisms, it's very hard to study them without quickly bumping into their associates. And so I would say that um, fungal ecologists um, end up thinking about the bacteria that live with the fungi, they end up thinking about the plants that live with the fungi quite fast because you simply can't study these organisms without studying their environments. And their environments are actually living organisms a lot of the time. There's a, something that you describe in the book. It's, I think, polyphonic music. And, and then you gave an, uh, an example of 
some women in Africa uh, who are searching out certain mushrooms and they do a polyphonic sa- a song uh and i've i in one of my uh choruses we do a polyphonic uh jungle songs where different parts of us are singing different things and after a while it kind of all blends in some way into some matrix that that makes sense but everybody's singing something different so it's kind of like you're describing that that's helping us to understand the connections and the entanglements is 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 this why you brought that up in the book yes i was trying to think of this relationship between parts and the whole you know when you look at a mycelial network you can see these growing tips it's made up of this multitude of growing tips these tubular elongating cells and when you watch a growing tip it branches it fuses it it navigates its environment but then all these other potentially millions or billions of growing tips are doing the same thing at the same time so it's tempting then to think of this as an aggregation of of individual tips but then you you realize quite fast that you can't think about it like that totally because they're all connected to each other so i end up shuttling between this you know is it, is it a collection of parts or is it a whole and and because i wanted to explore that more i i was trying to think of analogies in 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 the realm of human experience and i thought that polyphonic music was very helpful because the polyphonic music is where you have you know, the singing more than one part uh, telling more than one story at the same time where these parts don't meld into a unified front like a barbershop quartet you know each part retains its identity but it still twines and and dances with the other parts and so if you played polyphonic music to someone and say sing me back the tune and to 10 people everyone would sing you something different and so there's this lovely sense in polyphonic music that that these growing tips of the melodies are intertwining with each other while not surrendering their identity and so i found this a helpful way to think of these fungal networks because when you listen to polyphonic music as you say when you kind of lean back like soften your ears you hear the whole you hear the the collected whole of this of this piece of music and it's very you know astonishing and full and made up of all these elements but you can also zoom in and follow a part and as you follow a part you wonder with that part and explore with that part so this just helped me get my mind around this unusual distributed way of being well i think it is very very helpful uh, it was helpful to me to understand it and i'm i'm just thinking also about how one of the things that helped you to really delve into this was um a controlled LSD experiment that was conducted with scientists. Can you describe what benefit you got from participating in that uh, study? Yeah, well, the study was designed to, it was to look at the effects of LSD on the problem-solving abilities of scientists, engineers, mathematicians. And the idea was that this psychedelic experience might help us approach familiar problems from new angles and so i found it helpful for that reason you know i came along with these various these knots these tough untieable knots in my inquiry that i'd been fumbling with and and by dipping them in lsd by having this psychedelic experience i really found my way into these problems in unusual um unusual ways so from strange angles that i hadn't approached it from before and and so it's, it brought um, some fresh air to these rather stale rooms, these rooms that had become stale. 
for me. And um, so I found it very helpful, a kind of ventilating. So I think of that kind of as something that you feel like the connectedness or well, you call your book Entangled Life, uh, how everything is connected to everything and, and the, the, the borders of our mind are just kind of, we let go of that part of our mind and just sort of float into this soup that we're all living in in some ways. Is, was, was that part of your experience as well? There was certainly a sense that I, um, the, the rigid edges of my self softened and I was able to uh, imagine myself underground and had this very vivid experience underground in the wild of the soil. And of course, this was my visions. These are, these are, this is not, I'm not saying that this is fact or anyway um, has been validated, but by letting go of some of these pegs on which I hang and hung my identity and my daily habits, I was able to drift into new directions, into new places. And I do think it's to do, as you say, with the softening of our hard edges. Now, I love it that you you talk about like LSD, the original, it's really uh, was out of uh, fungus that the, the it was derived. Is Yes, Is so Hoffman, right? Albert, Albert Hoffman was studying the ergot fungi, which are these um, fungi which can induce grisly symptoms, um, convulsions and sense of unbearable burning. But they've been used for hundreds of years, or maybe more, by midwives and herb wives as obstetric drugs, as ways to staunch postpartum bleeding. They're very effective and to induce uterine contractions. And so Hoffman was studying these ergot fungi to try and find new obstetric drugs. And he was studying this in Sandos Labs in Switzerland, a major drug company. And out of these ergot alkaloids, he synthesized a compound, which then he used to make LSD. So it's not that the fungus produced LSD um, exactly in that form, but it was out of the study of these fungi that, that Hoffman stumbled across LSD. And so I was comforted by that knowledge when I went into this experiment. <laughs> so really immersed in uh in fungi, right? Um, mm-hmm. And there's something about um, coming out of that. Uh, you talk about the wood wide web. What, what is the, you know, we think of the world wide web, but this is the wood wide web. So, what, what is that web? It's a, it's a kind of affectionate term that's been given, a nickname that's been given to these shared networks of mycorrhizal fungi that, um, these, so we have a plant and a mycorrhizal fungus, as I was describing, but these fungi are promiscuous and they can grow into the roots of multiple different plants at once. So these fungi have many plant partners at the same time. And the plants are also promiscuous and they can have many fungal partners at the same time. And what this means is you can have these overlapping shared networks of fungi. And through these networks, um, nutrients can pass in some cases, um, potentially signaling molecules can pass and water can pass and other and it's a it's a fascinating phenomenon and this has given rise to this concept of the wood white web so i use it um but i also question it it's convenient but perhaps it's too convenient you know we're very ready to reach for um computer metaphors and and internet metaphors because it's the way that we experience networks most vividly in our lives most intimately in our lives in many ways but I think in the case of these fungal networks, it's a way into the subject. But my problem is that the, by calling it the wood wide web, we, we kind of 
we make these fungal networks into the cables. We liken them to the cables of the internet, these passive cables that just join things together. They just join plants together. But in reality, every link in a wood wide web is a fungus with a life of its own. And the fungus is by far um, a, a, well, no, it's, it's certainly not a passive a member of this assemblage. So I like to think of the um, wood wide web as, a, as an entrance point, but but I think it runs out of steam pretty fast. I'm here with Dr. Merlin Sheldrake. He's the author of Entangled Life, How Fungi Make Our Worlds, Change Our Minds, and Shape Our Futures. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. here with Dr. Merlin Sheldrake. He's the author of Entangled Life, How Fungi Make Our Worlds, Change Our Minds, and Shape Our Futures. And Merlin, we were just talking about the World Wide Web, and, and you know, we want to fix things. We want to say, okay, now I understand the whole thing. But what I noticed about you and in reading your book is that, that you've been able to Keep your mind open in a kind in a, with a, a sense of curiosity, and also a, a an ability to not know the answer but live more in the questions. You're you're still right in the midst of it. You haven't really. It it's a vast field, and and it's going to keep going and going for you. Is that right? Yes, and I, I tried. To, it's a practice, you know. It's, it's. I find it very helpful to cultivate curiosity because I think it's really the the fundamental um, feeling sentiment in, in in any kind of scientific uh, inquiry. You know, it's this fueled by curiosity, and and we can forget about curiosity quite easily. You know, if we if we if we have a few questions and we drown them in answers, you know, these questions stop being questions when you answer them. It's like the sort of collapse and, and then a new question arises. But sometimes it's important to stay in the question and, and often we have to stay in the question because we just don't know and so many things about the way that the world works, about how we work, about about the way the universe behaves. So I think it's very important to come at it from this state of uh, humble curiosity. And for that reason, I tried to avoid the temptation to build uh, small rooms from quick answers uh, and to and to try and feel comfortable in the space created by these open questions. Sometimes hard to feel comfortable in the space created by open questions because a kind of agoraphobia can kick in. Well, I think that this is true in all of our lives besides, you know, the pointed research that you're doing specifically on these mycorrhizal networks, fungi, fungus networks, uh, but just for life in general, uh, to just keep it open and keep keep asking the question and not making assumptions. I know that we're working on right now here in the U.S., particularly we're working on the idea of racism 
and how what are those deeply seated parts of ourselves that are are racist uh even when we say oh i'm i'm not racist uh and that's i kind of look at like our our whole society is going through a scientific experiment to really delve more deeply into the roots. And so it was very synchronistic to be reading your book about entangled life and, and going to the root of things and the root of life uh, has been very significant for me. Uh, do you have any comment on that? Well, certainly that the, uh, a poisonous and a troubled relationship to other humans um, and our poisonous and troubled relationships to the natural world are deeply connected and we're not going to create a socially just world without also creating an environmentally just world and vice versa and so it's a very powerful moment and there's so much hurt and pain and you know, Merlin, uh, in I know that you mentioned. I think I think it was your book, and maybe it was um, an interview that you gave that that you had a a mild case of COVID nineteen, possibly that you think that it was that's what you had, and and I'm thinking about this small, small, tiny virus that uh, has just stopped the world. You know, this invisible microscopic uh, life form has has been able to just stop economic growth, stop, uh, you know, everything in its tracks. Uh, and it, I, I find that curious, <laughs> curious. And we think we're in control and maybe we're, it's so much is so unknown. It is amazing, isn't it, that, that this the invisible world of, of viruses. And viruses aren't considered by many to even be alive. You know, so, so some people think that they are and some people think they aren't. Um, there's different types of viruses. But on the whole, these things are the smallest of, some of the smallest biological entities that, that exist. And, and the fact that this, um, these beings can, yes, to bring about such profound shifts in human behavior is amazing. Of course, viruses have been doing this forever. Uh, and they're one of the big drivers of evolutionary novelty because viruses carry bits of genetic material between organisms. And so actually some of our big um, evolutionary moments have come from viruses. Uh, the, the evolution of placental mammals required a viral, a retroviral uh, infection to allow organisms, young fetuses, to develop within their mothers, to disable their mother's immune systems to allow them to develop without triggering a an immune response. So the root of so many of our behaviors, we have a viral uh, encounter, an ongoing viral encounter. So it's, I think, important for us to remember that they, they do all sorts of things behind causing diseases. So they've been with us for a long time, and they'll continue to be with us. And uh, yeah, it's quite amazing. And talking about, you were saying, like, some people considered virus not alive. And I'm thinking of you mentioned in your book a a a language for uh, some indigenous people, Potawatomi. Okay, there you go. Mm. Thank you. And uh, 
they consider everything alive. Their whole language is based on verbs, like it's not a hill, but a, it's a healing. It's like a, a hill is in the process of healing. Where is that edge of what is life and what is not life? That's kind of the language that science is grappling with, isn't it? Yeah, so that's I think that's very amazing. That's um, I learned that from the work of Robin Wall Kimmerer, who's a great inspiration and um, a beautiful writer and a beautiful thinker. And and she talks about the, this language of animacy. She calls it and this this um, this verbing of the world, the process of actively being a hill. You know, hills are healing all the time. And I love this so much because life itself is 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 a process. You know, we think about or in the world, the universe is, we think about the universe as being made of things a lot of the time, you know, these, these, these things, these objects, these items, these substances. But, but really, at a fundamental level, everything is a process. You know, if you, if you boil down to an atom, it's not a billiard ball. It's a, it's a thrumming, um, standing wave of, of activity. And um, it's a wave, you know, as well as a particle. And, and so, and in the, the particles in your body, these are passing through you all the time. You know, the stuff that make you up is a different um, different collection of stuff to the stuff that made you up 10 years ago. Um, so what are you? You're not, you're, you're a system through which matter is passing. You're not, you're not a stable um, thing, you know. You're, you're a stabilized process. And so I find this really helpful to, to verb um, the world. You know, to 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 see everything as processes, and and yes, yeah, so that's one of the ways that I found the language of animacy helpful. There, there are a couple of uh, researchers that that are looking at the term that we use, evolution, and this is kind of related to what you were just talking about. And they call it. Uh, they suggest that the word involution might be a better word to describe what's actually going on than evolution. It, did, did you find that useful? Definitely. So this is the work of Natasha Myers um, and Carla Hustak, and it's a beautiful inquiry that they launch. And they say that evolution describes a rolling outwards. Um, and they say that it doesn't quite capture this tendency of organisms to involve themselves in each other's lives. You know, these the history of life is a history of associations between different organisms. And some of these blockbuster moments in the history of life have come about from these associations, the, the lasting intimacy of strangers, to use a term that Lynn Margulis coined. So um, this idea of involution from the word involve uh, better captures this tendency, this rolling inwards, this curling inwards uh, of, of life forms and life forms in their relation to other life forms, rather than this inevitable march outwards. You know, so I find it helpful just to to think about these patterns of of the flow of evolution, and and it helped me approach the history of life from a, a different point of view. So yeah, I find it a helpful term. I mean, evolution is still the technical term; it's not going to go anywhere anytime soon, but. Involution is a, is, a, is a very helpful idea. Well, it does give us a different concept of involve and everything is involved and everything is enmeshed in everything else in, in some ways. I was delighted uh, uh, to find um, there there is an intelligence in, let's say, uh, moles and lichen and 
and fungus, there's an intelligence, and there's a, an experiment that they did with slime mold, which had uh, the mold uh, go through an Ikea labyrinth. Did you, do you recall that experiment? Yeah, so this is my friend. Um, and he, had so, he had a stable of slime molds, and he, he was joking around with them. You know, he, he was just trying to come to, to explore their behavior. And he would always get lost in Ikea stores, the local Ikea store. He'd always have to ask an assistant to, um, to point him in the direction of the exit. And so he thought, so slime molds, there are these amoeba. They're not true molds. They're not true fungi, but they're, they're networked organisms. They live their lives as networks, and so they're very useful for studying these kind of behaviors, these decentralized problem-solving abilities. And so he thought, well, why don't I make a, a maze? And I'll make the maze based on the IKEA store. So I have the floor plan of the IKEA store with all the familiar obstacles and the familiar places and the exits and the places where they are in the real IKEA store, a scale model. And so he let the slime mold free in the, the miniature IKEA store, and it found the way to the exit in no time at all, much faster than he would scale to size. Um, and so he said, look, they're smarter than me. You know, they can solve this kind of problem better than I can. And it was a, very, it was a fun way into this question of problem solving and, and different organisms' uh, abilities to problem solve in quite different ways depending on their needs. And in fact, there are some uh, engineers that are using that, like slime mole or other, to, to develop transportation systems. I think Tokyo does a, a whole network of transportation and, and other places in the world really use, use that model to help them to build things. Absolutely, yeah. And one of the most dramatic cases of it um, happened recently that um, astronomers were trying to study the the structure of the universe itself, you know, the, the, which is thought to be made up of these a, a big network, an enormous network, uh, the cosmic web, so called, with big filaments of um, of gas and dark matter linking clusters of galaxies, and it's very hard to observe these these filaments and these network structure of the universe. So they what they tried is they 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 know where all these um, galaxies are in the local universe, and they wanted to make a network model to see how they all connected in, in this kind of efficient way. You know, what are the shortest, most efficient paths between these? I'm going to interrupt you for just a second because we have to go to break, and I want to really understand what you're saying and give you the full benefit of being able to describe it to our listeners. I'm here with Dr. Merlin Sheldrake. He's the author of Entangled Life, How Fungi make our worlds, change our minds, and shape our futures. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Dr. Merlin Sheldrake. He's the author of Entangled Life, and we're talking about the cosmic web right now and how these these small networks are helping to understand the large network of the cosmos. So you were describing that. Yes. Yeah, so, so the the astronomers wanted to make a model, a simulation, digital simulation of this network of the cosmic web, these filaments of gas that join these clusters of galaxies together. So they used an algorithm which was in, made um, devised by watching slime mold behavior because slime molds uh, have this very efficient space searching algorithm. So they used a slime mold algorithm to connect all these clusters of galaxies. Uh, and then they tested that against the real data. And they found that the slime mold version of the cosmic web actually seemed to um, map onto the actual cosmic web from there, the experiments they could do. And I just thought this was a really beautiful example of, um, you know, as below, so above. And, um, and how the very small and the very large and can converge in some places and can help us to understand the totality of things. It's amazing. It's amazing what we're able to describe. And it keeps like getting larger and larger rather than smaller and smaller particles. It's just like showing this vast network. In the book, you mentioned ways that um, fungi have, have really served humankind. For example, um, the first life that came after the uh, Hiroshima was was fungi, I believe, that started to grow, and and also Chernobyl and the sides of the the reactors, fungi starts to appear. So, what is happening there? Yes. So the Hiroshima story it's a, it's an account that um, I Anna Singh, the amazing anthropologist and author who wrote a book called uh, The Mushroom at the End of the World, she describes it in her book, and and um, the story is that the first organism to appear after the the Hiroshima bomb was a Matsutake mushroom. It's, it was reported in a paper, but we're not sure if it's true. Or not. It's, it's, it's a story, you know, and it could well be the case. It could well not be the case. But the fungi in the blasted reactor at Chernobyl, this is absolutely happening. And these are very fascinating fungi because they, they don't just survive this radiated environment. They don't just withstand this enormous stress. Um, they grow towards radioactive hot particles. They seek out these hot spots of radioactivity. And um, so they seem to delight in this environment. And, and people think that the fungi are actually harvesting the energy in the radiation, analogous to the way that plants harvest the energy in sunlight. Um, so we could think of it as this radio synthesis as opposed to photosynthesis. And there's still lots of work being done on this, but it's a it's a plausible hypothesis right now. Would would that make then eventually that the the fungi would, through their process of digesting this radioactivity, uh, would it make it inert then and and no longer dangerous at some point? Well, it would help. the The radioactivity is caused by these the, the decay of these radioactive isotopes, and the, that's a random process that's not going to change. Um, but so we're still going to have a radioactive site for a long time. But what the fungus would do is 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 create a, create life in these blasted environments. Would be capturing that energy and using that to create um, their bodies and to metabolize them in the way that they metabolize. And and so we could think of them as aiding the remediation of these radioactive sites for sure. 
So remediation, you mentioned that, and that's something that, that's being really uh, looked at. There's, there's something that you mentioned in the book, an organization, a company called Ecovative Design. Is that right? Ecovative mm-hmm. Design? Ecovative, yeah. They uh, are actually designing things and building things with fungi. So describe some of their activities. Yes, yeah, so it's one of the really exciting frontiers of mycological inquiry and application right now. And what they've worked out is that you can use mycelium to create building materials. And so you can get um, a, make a slurry of, of you know, ground up corn stalks or sawdust, you know, agricultural waste. And you can let the mycelium run through this mixture in, this, in a certain shape. So you pack it into a mold let the mycelium run through this mixture, and it kind of binds it together a bit like a, a composite um, holding. It makes this you know, biological uh, net that clamps it all together. And then you um, you fire that in a kiln, you end up with a block of material which you can use to do all sorts of things. They can, depending on how they produce it, they can have board that replaces particle board. You can have blocks for building. They can produce a sort of lightweight packaging material which replaces foam and... and um, Plastic packaging. Dell ship a lot of their servers in mycelial packaging. Uh, you can make a, a mycelial leather, which is really exciting because I imagine. So to have a normal leather, you have to cut down a forest. Then you have to have cows. You have to feed the cows on soybeans. Gone in the other cut down forest. You have to kill the animals. You have this whole process, and then you end up with your leather. But this fungal leather can grow on material that would otherwise be thrown away in a matter of a week and a half or two weeks. So. Ecobative is poised, and their, their, their technologies and their partners are, are poised to disrupt some of these really polluting and troublesome industries, which is an exciting thought. Very exciting of all the things that they're doing with it. And, and also, I think you mentioned in Pakistan, they found some uh, novel fungal strain that actually breaks down some plastics is that right? and that's where mm-hmm. that's very important if we can replace plastic that which lasts forever can't be broken down and reused plastic hasn't i think hasn't been able to be recycled so easily so it's very helpful to have something like a fungal network helping us out there absolutely and i mean there are many different types of plastic and 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 the um, polyurethane plastics that they found in Pakistan that were being um, eaten by these fungi are one sort. And there are other sorts that other bacteria are more ready uh, consumers of. So it's a really complex problem and, and, and will require uh, different collectives of organisms applied in you know, the right conditions and uh, all this kind of thing. And so it's uh, the beginning of a big new field. But um, it is amazing how these, these um, relentless appetites can um, can help us out of some of our really sticky problems that we've made for ourselves and for the other organisms that we share the planet with. Talking about appetites, I loved it. At the very end of your book, you, you describe how when you got the actual physical book, you fermented it into beer. Can you describe that? I just love it that at the very end of the book, you, you it goes fungal. <laughs> Absolutely. Actually, I have just here um, two copies of the book that are sprouting oyster mushrooms that I've been eating. I ate it, ate it yesterday, and um, 
because the oyster mushrooms were ate the book and then they sprouted the mushrooms and I ate the mushrooms and it was a way of eating my words, a way of, of closing the circuit, <laughs> a way of, of feeding the book back into these metabolic processes that I describe in the text. And the beer is another part where the, te- the pages I'll put into an acid and make a sugar and then ferment the sugar into an alcohol and drink that. And, and going back to your fermenting, um, I think you describe how you, you actually took some apples that were strained from Sir Isaac Newton, who described gravity, uh, and you took those apples, and then you took some other apples from Charles Darwin's garden, that was, and, and you made beer, mead from that. Is that right? So yes, cider, um, and absolutely, yeah. The the, the Newton apples were that was um, gravity cider, and the Darwin apples was evolution cider. These were fun, you know, kind of uh, goofs to to play on the way that we tell stories about more than human organisms, and the way that we can digest these stories and consume these stories. Yeah, it was a fun a fun project, and they made very good ciders, actually, delicious. Oh, that's great, and so. You really are immersed in that more than human. I love that phrase, more than human, because we look at everything from this certain perspective, and you're helping us to open up our perspective in larger ways that might be more helpful to all life and and to understand our entanglement. Yeah, so this time, more than human, it was um, devised by my my friend, my uncle brother, in fact, David Abram, he's an amazing ecologist and philosopher and and it's a term that I like a lot because it decenters our perspective it reminds us that there is so much more than us and and so much I think of of our, our current predicament has come from our species narcissism our self-centeredness as a species and as a culture rather lots of traditional cultures of course aren't um, they don't have this kind of species narcissism and a certain kind of reductive uh, materialist approach to the the natural world. So this is a kind of this is a modern problem we face, and or well, modern being the last few hundred years. And it's um, yeah, the more than human just helps to relax again some of those hard edges, and that's something I find really helpful to think of our edges as actually not being so distinct, not being so um, unbreachable, that we are enveloped, we're open systems, enveloped in this um, seething world of life forms and processes. And um, we're a part of that. And whether we like it or not, you know, it's a question of whether we want to admit it and to start um, to start looking at these, these relationships we find ourselves bound up within. And I think we really need to start doing this more as much as possible. And so that's one of the reasons I do these these funny practices, like the ciders, the various things, is just to try and to keep tricking myself out of my human-centeredness. You know, it, it takes work. I keep doing it. Otherwise, I, I lapse. You know, I lapse back into my species narcissism. Merlin, I want to thank you so much for being part of New Dimensions today. I've been speaking with Dr. Merlin Sheldrake. He's the author of Entangled Life, How Fungi make our worlds, change our minds, and shape our futures. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, MerlinSheldrake.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions.
This is program number 3705. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.